Hey listeners, I want to start out today's episode with an update for you guys. So in the last episode, we talked to you guys about how we're going to donate our June Patreon proceeds as well as matching that to the ACLU. However, after some more reflection and looking through all of the different phenomenal resources of where you can donate, we've decided to hone in a little bit more. And so we're going to be donating the June proceeds and then also matching it still to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. We wanted to pick a fund that better supports the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening right now, not something that was a little bit more general. Yes, we thought it was very important right now to directly support the lives of Black people, especially those who have been victims themselves of this police injustice and other injustices across the country. Yeah, and so this legal defense fund that the NAACP has, it's similar to a lot of the bailout funds that you may have seen around your cities and in your states. It's a way to help the people who have been arrested, especially during these protests, and help them meet bail. We've talked time and time again about how corrupt and fucked up our justice system is, and how sometimes you could be stuck in jail for years when you haven't been convicted of anything because you're waiting on your trial and you can't afford your bail. So bailout funds are absolutely something we need to support. The system's broken. And so this is just one step in the right direction. They are an incredible foundation with incredible impact across the nation and definitely one that we are very proud to be supporting. And you know what's one thing that's really frustrating to me and that I don't understand? I've seen so many people talk about how, you know, riots don't do anything, they're only horrible. The Civil Rights Act was signed six days into the riots after the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. Also, it's June. And in the United States, June is Pride Month that celebrates the LGBTQ plus community. And the gay rights movement was started from a riot, from a, you know, property was destroyed, places were burned, windows were smashed. And that's how, that that's what Stonewall was. Right. And that was 51 years ago. Last year was the huge 50 year celebration. And so we celebrate, you know, having these rights and these movements being started from riots. So to say that they don't have impact is just not understanding what riots are. It's the expression of the unheard voices, the unheard masses who are not being listened to, finally being listened to. Well, and another thing that's so frustrating, I am tired of hearing people complaining about the property damage. They're out there saying like, oh, it's so horrible that a black man was killed, but like destroying property, it's got to stop. That's not how anyone should be looking at the situation. We should be flipping that. You should be saying, oh, I mean, it's horrible that property is being destroyed, but killing innocent black men needs to stop. And that's what we should be focusing on. Riots, like you said, it's the voice of the unheard. And also, riots aren't supposed to, and protesting is not supposed to make you comfortable. No. Now's the time to be uncomfortable, have difficult conversations. It's what we should all be doing. Yes. And listening. And on the subject of pride that I mentioned earlier, I know it's something that a lot of us have been looking forward to. I've been looking forward to it for, I mean, since pride last year. And unfortunately, due to the global pandemic, most pride parades and gay bars and different celebrations like that have rightfully been canceled and aren't happening this year, which sucks because it is just so powerful to be 
surrounded by that kind of community. Brittany, I don't even know if I've told you this, but I know last year my work did an event for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. We created this virtual monument for it and we had this huge like opening event for it and it was like one of the first times that I ever felt like genuinely proud to be gay and not just like proud of who I am in spite of but like proud of what my community's gone through what we've done the everything about it and it was just it was so powerful and it's one of the reasons why you know it sucks that pride's not happening this year i've had some great ones god pride in seattle if it whenever it happens again if y'all are in the pacific northwest oh my god the pride parade is like 300 hours long (laughs) and there's 55 million people there it all ends at seattle center under the space needle and there's like 55 trillion different little booths with free things. There's free concerts. There's just the community gathering. I laid in the grass shirtless and drank a lot, but that was just me. <laughs> when you said free concerts, I thought you were going to say free condoms. And I was like, but also probably yes. There's a ton yes. of free condoms. <laughs> That's where you stock up. Just like fill a bag and be like, this will be good for the next month. Just kidding. Well, and it's it's all the companies that you're like, that's kind of weird. You go to the T-Mobile booth and they're like, here's a fanny pack and a bag of condoms and lube. And I'm like, thanks, T-Mobile. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate it, but that's kind of weird. <laughs> well, hi, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we just had to redo that because Brittany forgot to include me about 10 <laughs> seconds ago. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Yeah, I did. It's fine. I was like, hi, Brit- this is Brittany, and this is my podcast, Blood and Wine. I don't I'm like, like to... Okay. Sh- I don't like to share. <laughs> I'm just the consultant here. Oh, my God. Well, it is, like, week 112 of this pandemic, and with... And it's episode 109 of our podcast. We're almost there. We've almost made it. I will say, my days, I don't even ever... I, st- I don't know what day it is anymore. But let's talk about our topic. So this episode was my week to pick. And I got this idea a little bit a few weeks ago from my last one. And which the last episode I picked the topic from was vampires. And Mm -hmm. you'll be able to see the close relation. But I, you know, I dabbled between the two. And so I'm just going to do the second one now because, again, it's my choice. Um, I hope you didn't dabble in what our topic's about. Oh, God. uh, uh, Okay. You know. Well, all right. No, I didn't. But today's episode, we're going to be talking about occult murders. Brittany's a witch, is what she's saying. I mean, I tried. I just don't have the abilities. It's okay. I'm the supreme. We all know that. (laughs) Things of the occult are things that are supernatural, mystical, you know, witches, all these practices. Even Satanism is seen as something of the occult. So yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Occult murders. They're really weird, creepy, and we don't like to think about them. But when you think back to like the 90s, satanic... Satanic panic. Yep. When satanic panic was going on, pretty much everyone thought every murder had to do with the occult. Um, That's not true, but unfortunately some did. Not necessarily in the 90s because, you know, the occult has been around far longer than that. Uh, If I was going to make a punk band, I would name it the satanic panic. I know it is a really good band name. It's probably a band already. I'm 90% sure it's a band. 
It probably is. But before we get into our occult murder cases, let's get into our wine. Yes. Tyler, what wine did you pick today? So the wine I'm drinking today, it is the 2019 Belvento Pinot Grigio from Friuli Venezia Giulia, Italy. Man. Is Pinot Grigio Italian? Yes, it is. It is. (laughs) You just sound like you had this like moment of like, oh, oh. I did. Yeah, I actually picked an Italian wine too. This is funny. Oh, I, yeah, I was at the little bodega and I was like, hmm, I haven't done a Pinot Grigio in a hot minute. I was actually, you'll be proud of me. I was looking at the Chardonnays, but the only unoaked Chard they had was $18. And I said, no, thank you. (laughs) Fair. But for this one, I didn't have a ton of information that I could find. Um, The back of the bottle just says that it is lovely with melon and pear fruit flavors, followed by a medium-bodied wine that has fresh acidity and a clean, crisp finish with a touch of fruit. Which doesn't really make sense to me, because it's like, it tastes fruity with a touch of fruit. (laughs) So I think it's going to be a little bit of a fruit flavor. Maybe, but I did what I usually do in case like this, where I just found reviews, and um, there was a pattern with them, which I thought was hilarious, and I was going to read these as if I were a Game of Thrones character, but Brittany shot me down, so y'all won't get to hear that. Sorry. I don't understand why you would want to. Because I watched this video on YouTube recently that had uh, the actress that played Cersei reading, like, tweets as Cersei. Oh, no, it was reading, like, Desperate Housewives insults as Cersei. Whatever. Brittany doesn't want me to do it, so I won't. (laughs) The first review. Pale straw green color. On the nose, citrus, pears, melons, and minerals. On the palate, light-bodied with medium acidity and a long lemon finish. So, a lot more citrusy than the bottle mentioned. The next review. Chapter 2. Oh my god. Listen, my goal is to do an audiobook one day. Just do it. Like, just record yourself reading. <laughs> just read a book and then just keep it for myself. I don't know, send it out. Uh, no. Uh, so next review, green apple, gardenia, and macadamia nut on the nose. Grassy minerality. Weirdly good for a cheap airport wine. So I have no fucking idea what this wine's going to taste like because every thing someone has said so far is different. Third review. This white wine opens with soft nose of floral and citrus notes. It's dry with bright acidity of citrus, lemon lime, flavors of green melon with a slight mineral finish. So, okay, we're following what the bottle says. And then the last review. (laughs) Yum. Sushi bar at O'Hare. So I guess this is an airport wine. I didn't go to the airport to get it, (laughs) but... It's an airport wine, apparently. Full-bodied, off-dry Pinot Grigio, ripe pear, nectarine, white peach, and wonderfully floral mouth-coating mid-palate. Superb. So I don't know if it's light and crisp, it's medium-bodied, if it's full-bodied. I'm apparently going to taste citrus, but also flowers, and macadamia, but also apples, maybe peach, maybe melon. I (laughs) I don't know what I'm about to put into my body. And it's a screw top. Oh, and it's a screw top. Okay. Oh, oh my god. Okay, just let it happen. <laughs> um, ooh. Okay, it's definitely kind of a green tinge white wine, like a Vino Verde. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm seeing a green color. 
I mean, I guess it smells like a Pinot Grigio. I don't drink Pinot Grigio enough to, like, really remember, other than it's a little heavier than Sauvignon Blanc, but Sauvignon Blanc's almost water when it comes to, like, how clear and, like, light it is. I don't know. I'm excited. It's it's going to taste like some uh, amalgamation of fruit, citrus, and maybe floral, maybe some macadamia nuts. I don't think I know what a just a straight up macadamia nut tastes like, but I maybe will learn today. Maybe you will. Oh, uh, yeah. What wine are you drinking? <laughs> I was like, you gonna are you gonna let me open mine, or were you just ready? You to... know, you you forgot I was part of this podcast. I'll forget that you're gonna drink wine. <laughs> All right. So this is the 2015 Marquesi de Borgosol Salis Salentino Reserva from Puglia, Italy. Did I say that right? Yep. It's Puglia, right? Puglia. So <laughs> you are not allowed back in Italy. I know. I know. They just told me. You know, I will make it there one of these days. Okay, so this wine was thirteen dollars at Total Wine, and oh, mine was like eight dollars. By the way, nice. They're claiming that this is one of the wines of the summer <laughs> for twenty twenty. <Okay. laughs> You said that as if you do not fucking believe them. They say it's the wine of the summer. I don't have to call bullshit on that. (laughs) Oh, shit. I'm going to have to try it to see how I feel about that. And honestly, one of the things that I'm like, oh, wine of the summer, you say, it's a red wine. And I'm like, hmm, okay. I mean, I drink red wine year round, but not generally looked at as the wine of the summer. However, okay. this is an easy-drinking Italian wine, and it's made from the Negromaro varietal, and it's a really good Italian wine, or it's really good for an Italian wine beginner. So someone who's not as familiar with Italian wines, this would be a really good one to start with. It is a full-bodied red, has a very bold taste, medium dryness and acidity, and each sip... You're going to get a little bit of cherry, obviously, because it's Italian and it's medium bodied. Of course, you're going to get cherry. Oh, obviously. Okay, listeners, <laughs> we just had to cut out like 10 minutes of laughter because sometimes I say things and they're very, very much not what I meant. And that happened. Very inappropriate. Um, It was an accident. I'll let you guys just think about what it could possibly be. But... This wine also has flavors of thyme and lavender, which I thought was a really interesting uh, combination with that cherry. And they work really well on their own. Or if you pair them. (laughs) I'm sorry, continue. Or if you pair them with pretty simple dishes like grilled tomato bruschetta. One of the things that I thought was really awesome about this wine, though, is James Suckling rates it 92 points. So it's very, it's a highly rated wine. Oh, yeah. We listen to James. So with it having that high of a rating, I'm like, okay, all right, I'm looking forward to this. Also, it has a string on it, which is cool. Yeah, it's wrapped up like a parcel. It's like a little present. But I'm just going to, you can like split the string down the middle and there's no foil to cut. Just... Oh, okay. Um, and it has. But it does have a cork. It does have a cork. Yes, what I was about to say. So, oh, sorry. Let me just use my handy dandy. What is? Oh, damn it! I was thinking of like Blue's Clues, his handy dandy notebook. Notebook. My handy dandy wine key. 
Blue, he's got a clue to the nearest bottle. Um, <laughs> Struggling? A little bit. Something happened and I, I fucked it up, but here we go. Nice. That was a good pop. Yeah, I feel like it's been a while since we've had a good pop on the episode. We've been drinking uh, screw tops like it's no one's business. You know what? It is no one's business. Okay? <laughs> you know what? I drink my wine how I want to drink my wine. I don't need you telling me to do it otherwise. Cork, no cork. I'm going to drink it. Box, bottle, it doesn't Put matter. Put a silly straw straight in the bottle. <laughs> Whatever works. That would be like the opposite of aerating it. Sucking it through a straw. But you wouldn't stain your teeth. Ugh, that's such a like 42-year-old mom thing to do. You know what I just almost did? Poured this in my lap. <laughs> I'm struggling today, okay? You are. We both are. I, not complaining, but definitely worked like a 12-hour day, and now we're recording, and I'm like, okay. Right on the struggle <laughs> bus. Ooh. That was to the tune of Magic School Bus, if any of y'all didn't catch that. So this smells, it smells like an Italian wine. It's got those earthy, herby scents. I'm getting a little bit of leather and like very strong, like more so than I'm used to getting when I smell leather. You know, like you pulled a handful of sage out of a saddle on the Texas summer heat. It, it sounds like I'm in a boot store. I mean, smells like. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's a horse in the boot store. Yeah. He has to get boots, too. No, it smells a lot of leather and herb and earthy, and I'm really looking forward to trying this. So I think we should cheers. I am so ready to drink wine. (laughs) (laughs) Just drink (laughs) either one. All right, cheers. Cheers. Oh my God, this is wonderful. Oh my God. Ooh, tell me. All right, James does not lead you astray. Wow. So it is very smooth. I don't know what lab... It's the Arminitar. What? They lead you through labyrinths. It's just... Continue. <laughs> it's very smooth. Like, it just... It, it felt great going down. There's not too much acidity, which is great, because I constantly have acid reflux now because I'm old. And it's <laughs> it's nice and not too dry. Very bold taste. Let me taste it again. I'm getting that cherry. It's just like this burst of cherry in the mouth. Oh my god, you guys, this is fantastic. And if I knew how to describe what lavender tasted like, I'm sure I'd be able Floral. to tell you. Oh, you think Sucking so? Sucking on soap. Um, it doesn't taste like soap. Oh my gosh, I cannot get over how easy drinking this is. That I would, I will definitely say this is a nice, smooth, easy drinking wine. But is it the wine of the summer? Yes. Is this going to be on the Vogue Summer 2020 cover? No, dude, seriously, with how smooth this is, for a bold, like, this is like a hoof wine. Like, you could see yourself in one of those sun hats that has like a four foot wide brim, your big ass glasses. I I think in my head, the summer takes place the Kentucky Derby, now that I think about it. (laughs) Whatever. Yes, I can absolutely see myself sitting outside drinking this as a red wine for summer. So, all right, Total Wine, I should not question you. You know what you're doing. Sure. Yeah, well, they kind of make a business doing it, so I would hope so. So tell me about your Pinot Grigio. Mm. You hate it. What does it taste like? Peach? Melon? Feet? It's definitely on the, f- like, the first taste pear. 
And then it go- it goes like kind of a bitter lime at the end. Not a key lime like a Sauvignon Blanc. Not that like tropically. But more the but citrusy. More, more the citrusy and more a little bit bitter at the end. I don't know what the hell these people are talking about with like peaches and... <laughs> You're like, this doesn't taste like a peach. Liars. I mean, I guess floral. Yeah, there's some floral in there. But I don't know. All the like peach and nectarine. I don't know what y'all were tasting because it was not this. It's a solid Pinot Grigio. Like, I would actually put it probably top 30% of Pinot Grigios I've had. I would totally drink this. It's definitely one that would be nice on like, not not take it to the beach. I feel like that's Sauvignon Blanc's territory. But maybe like a picnic, like a summer picnic where you're having, I don't know, potato salad that's just too warm because why did you bring that? There's hot mayonnaise in that now. (laughs) And I don't know, sandwiches. I don't go on many picnics. No one invites me. So that's fine. And I don't want to eat outside. There's bees. And I don't want to get in their way. They're trying to save the earth. But I don't want to get stung. <laughs> the last time I went on a picnic, by the way, where this is coming from, I was attacked by bees. I was eating chicken salad with avocado. <laughs> Dark times. Uh, but yeah, no, this would be a picnic wine <laughs> is my the end of my story. Um, I could totally see you uh, being chased by bees. Listen, I because I didn't want to swat at them because one, I didn't want to get stung. But two, I don't. They're t- save the bees. They're- we need to save them if we still want to have wine. It's true. But also, stay the fuck away from me and my fucking sandwich. <laughs> they just wanted a nibble. Seattle has bees, y'all. If you've never thought about it, they got bees, but they don't have wasps, really. Dude. And that's what's important. You talk about Seattle the same amount that I talk about French wine. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, well. I lived there. That is You true. didn't live in a French wine. You kind of did. I would love to do that. But today... We've got our wine. Oh, yes. Now, let's talk about our topic. Tyler, what occult murder did you pick for today's episode? So, the case I chose, it um almost reads like an episode of like Desperate Housewives or something. There's a just it there's a lot. It's a lot going on. But yeah, so mine is the murder of Scott Dell. So the sources I used, an article from Murderpedia, and by that I just mean, like, her page in Wikipedia. Also, her name is pronounced Cheryl. It's spelled Cherry L-L-E. And so I spent a good, like, 20 minutes being like, is it Cheryl? Is it Cheryl? Is it? And then it was like, Cheryl Dell. And I was like, oh, I guess. So, yeah, the Murderpedia page for Cheryl Dell. Have fun spelling it. Um, an article from the National Post by Rod McIver. An article in Monsters and Critics by Angelica Sumter. And she was writing that about an episode of The Case That Haunts Me on Investigation Discovery. One of the episodes covered this case. So if you would, after me telling my story, you're like, wait, but what? Tune into that. I have not watched it, but I really want to. I also used an article from the Eganville Leader by R. Bruce McIntyre, and an article in Listverse by Robert Griminick. Okay, so Scott and Cheryl Dell, they were a young couple, they got married when he was 19 and she was 17, 
And their marriage was very turbulent, is how it was described. And after being together for more than 20 years, in 1992, they separated. But then three years after they separated, on December 29th of 1995, Scott was found dead in his house in Killaloe, Ontario, Canada. But it was considered a suicide. He had previously had mouth cancer, and he'd just been re-diagnosed. It had come back. And when authorities found him and looked over his body and stuff, he'd taken a lethal dose of antifreeze that was in a bottle of wine that he was drinking. So their theory was he'd committed suicide over his depression of his marriage with Cheryl ending and also the return of his mouth cancer. But the story goes a lot deeper than that, obviously. That's not the end of my case. (laughs) And that's the story. So their relationship was one that was um, very non-traditional, I guess. And I will say, I had to parse through these sources. I know it was written in 1995, and I guess it was a different time. But holy shit, half of them were just rude as hell towards Cheryl. And... I mean, if you haven't pieced it together, like, she's a murderer here. But, I mean, she used to be um, an exotic dancer. And so all the stories were like, the former stripper slut who murdered her husband. I'm like, oh my fucking god. Or like, her lesbian lover. It just, it was very sensationalized. And everything is very much, um, I had to parse through the writings of determining was he this great guy or is the story just being written in this he's a white knight and she's this evil sorceress maleficent villain creature because that is how it was written and so did my best to parse through with multiple sources that's why i had kind of a lot but yes so did want to just throw out that disclaimer here and now if you dive into research this be prepared to clutch your pearls at how sexist so many of these articles are that's awful yeah so after they separated scott he continued to love cheryl and pined after her and there'd been a lot of infidelity in the marriage cheryl had cheated on him a few times and i guess actually left him for a woman that she met at an incest survivors group this woman was gay doherty so the two of them gay and cheryl they started dating and were basically inseparable until gay she said she started to feel suffocated and she like broke off the affair and she would later say that cheryl became very emotionally unstable and overdosed on medication after they split and around this time cheryl's getting real into witchcraft that's kind of her thing is witchcraft and potions and that'll come into play I keep thinking of Hocus Pocus. I know that's totally inappropriate. Like Bette Midler? Yeah. Honestly, I was picturing Bette Midler a lot. She doesn't look like Bette Midler at all. She looks like um, Jodie Comer, the actress who plays the new Doctor. Her, but like gone through a real rough next 20 years. Okay. And that is Cheriel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But... It just does not look like it's Cheryl, but that's how I heard it pronounced. So, <laughs> But uh, Cheryl and Gay, they split, but they kept in touch. And 
occasionally they would like visit each other. And this was even after Cheryl began a new relationship with a woman named Nancy Fillmore. And Nancy was actually the nanny of Cheryl and Scott's kids. Because they had kids together. I didn't mention that yet, but they had kids. Oh. And a nanny. And the nanny was Nancy. And Nancy is now with mom. This I- is a spiderweb. When I said Desperate Housewives, I wasn't even thinking about this part. Oh. But like, it gets... I can just hear whoever the one that died in like season one and then kept doing all the voiceovers. I can hear her explaining this. She's I don't the, know who that was, but. She was the main character. And it's interesting because she was the main character, but actually rarely in the show, but did all the voiceovers. And I can't remember her name either. She was Gossip Girl. No, it wasn't Dan. Did you know Kristen Bell was Gossip Girl? Did the voice. I think I did, actually. Well, it's just like Bob Saget did the voice for Ted Mosby in How I Met Your Mother. I I know that, but I think it's funny, and listeners, if y'all have children, just start listening to Gossip Girl, uh, but just thinking of Anna from Frozen saying all that shit. I've never seen Gossip Girl, so I don't know how salacious it is what she's saying. I don't know if she's up there being like, and you'll never guess who's dick got sucked at the party or if it's just like and you'll never guess who left the party wearing someone else's tie xoxo gossip girl or whatever i mean the second one's not far the first one dude it was on like the wb so (laughs) (laughs) i don't know regardless (laughs) i Um, i loved gossip girl and i'm looking forward to the potential remake on hbo max it's back oh okay so maybe that one will say things like my first <laughs> sentence maybe <laughs> hbo max it's just hbo xxx uh, it's just max <laughs> <laughs> oh lord okay uh anyway this this case could be an hbo or like a hulu six episode miniseries i see it i see it with my eyes but, um, okay, so, Cheryl, she's now dating Nancy. Nancy's the nanny. Scott, ex-husband, still in love with Cheryl. Also very much like a great dad, very involved in the kids' lives. Also owns a farmhouse. I think the kids stay with him most of the time. Gay is still in this, but just, like, kind of visiting Cheryl every once in a while. There's a web I'm building. <laughs> so, one day... Cheryl is at home. I guess also Nancy's there because she's the nanny. The kids are there and it's Scott's like turn to pick them up to like get custody to see them. And then also Gay comes over just to see them. So all three of them are there. The kids are there. And Scott doesn't pick up the kids, which is really weird because Scott was, if he had anything in the world, it was his kids. Yeah. I mean... They were his number one everything. So when I was doing the source, I assumed it was Nancy, but apparently Gay is the one who was like, I'm going to go check on Scott. And I don't know why, because what are you to Scott other than like the woman my wife left me for? So, but I don't know. Gay is like, I'm going to go check on him. That is really weird that she would be the one suggesting that he's potentially not okay. Yeah, I assumed it was Nancy. Just when I was, like, doing my research, I saw the name, so I was like, oh, yeah, it's Nancy. The nanny's gonna go check on him, because she actually knows him. Interesting. But, no, it was just his ex-wife's ex. 
Well, and maybe she was just really uncomfortable with Cheryl and Nancy, and she was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna go check on Scott to get away." Yeah, still awkward, but well, and then Scott also sounds like the kind of guy who, like, for the sake of his kids, for the sake of Cheryl, would have been like, you know what, if this is the person that my wife loves and is gonna be around my kids, like, you know what, I'm gonna love her too. But anyways, Gay heads over to the farmhouse to check on him and she sees the lights are on, the Christmas tree tree is all lit, there's like love songs that are playing throughout the house and she's like, what the fuck? So she walks in and she finds scott dead lying on the floor he's wearing just a blue sweater and that's it and his fingers have like turned blue on his desk there's a bunch of different pages of handwritten notes and there's also a half empty one and a half liter so a double bottle of piat dual wine that's on his desk so he'd had a bottle but he was dead and that wine it was noticeable because just the other day Cheryl had gifted the wine to Scott for Christmas. And also, earlier that night, so like the night before, 12 hours before he's found, Cheryl had actually been talking to him on the phone. And he was sitting there drinking alone at his house, and she was on the phone with him. And they talked for hours. And Cheryl really wanted him to drink this bottle of wine. She, weirdly, like, a lot of the conversation was spent being like, just open it, drink it. And then, after drinking the wine, he went into a coma and died. You know, you really picked, like, the epitome of the podcast in your episode, Death by Wine. Yep. That's why I saw this one's like, well, I'm gonna do this one. Yeah. So I'm thinking she poisoned him, but I'm not understanding where the witch part's coming in. She's the witch. What's the difference between a poison and a potion? Dude, okay. All I'm going to say. (laughs) Fair. All I'm going to say. So uh, the notes that Scott had written at the desk, because basically he'd been sitting at the desk, much like Brittany and I are doing right now, talking, much like Brittany and I are doing, and drinking his wine, much like Brittany and I are doing. So did you poison my wine? I'm not even there. That's my answer. Neither was she. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Just kidding. Um, Anyways, so... He was at his desk, talking to his ex-wife, drinking the wine, and he was also writing notes. And Cheryl didn't know this, but these notes really gave the only clue to, like, his mental state at the time. And on them he wrote, What did you think was going to happen if I drank a bottle of wine, listening to music we used to listen to? I'm going to think about you and me together. I feel like holding you close to me like never before. I feel like making love to you. I feel like all the bad stuff would go away. I was probably supposed to die of cancer, but my life was spared. I don't know why. Our lives are going by so fast. That was the last thing he wrote before he died. That definitely does sound like it's the beginning of a suicide note. And that's and that's one of the big reasons why. It's because they did their autopsy there was antifreeze in the bottle of wine. Well, antifreeze tastes sweet, so if he was wanting to kill himself, putting it in a bottle of wine, making it palatable, that doesn't not make sense. Also, if his mouth cancer had returned, mouth cancer is super painful, 
and he's also depressed. And he wrote that, and it kind of sounds like a suicide note. So, yeah. And even the symbolism of his wife gave him this bottle of wine, and he's using that to kill himself. It does not surprise me that that was their conclusion. I know, and I'm really curious at what point this changes from suicide to homicide. The witchcraft broke. Or let's just say, the coven became no more. I'm pretending that these are different chapter titles. Anywho, so, the case still viewed as suicide, but after a few years, that was when updates started to kind of surface. So after Scott's death, Cheryl and Nancy, they continued their relationship, but it started to go really bad in March of 1997. So this is... A couple years after mm, his death? A year and some change oh. after his death. Because he died in December of 95. So Nancy actually took Cheryl to court to get her stuff back from the house. Like it was not, it was a messy breakup. Nancy also started to give some pretty damning character evidence against Cheryl that would definitely be a thing continuing into the future. So Nancy alleged that Cheryl locked the kids in their rooms and then would drug them with sleeping medication and neglect them. So she would get tired of having to be mom and she'd be like, Tamantha, Johnny, come here, take this fun NyQuil and go to sleep. Mommy's done being mommy. Um, and it would go to the point where another friend would, who testified the same thing, she told them that after drugging the children, she would have then, on many occasions in the morning, had to like wake the kids up, wash their sheets because they'd soak their beds in urine because they'd been passed out on cold medicine. Oh my god. And then also, in further testimony, this friend, Kim, she alleged that Cheryl would constantly badmouth Scott and that she'd wanted him dead for a while. One time she even mentioned hiring a hitman. Kim also heard Cheryl wonder out loud after her cat died of drinking antifreeze. She heard Cheryl say, hmm, wonder how much antifreeze it would take to kill a human. Okay, Cheryl, like, you may as well just be like, stand up and say, I did it. I killed him. I did it. It was me. But no, she's a witch. That's not really attached to Scott's death yet, because it's still considered a suicide. But then came kind of the, the bomb dropped. After Nancy got her shit out of the house and they broke up, Nancy went to the police. Because of some of the stuff that was coming out? Oh, uh, because of some stuff that she was about to make come out. Nancy oh. was about to, like, lop the cap off of this whole damn volcano of shit. Alright, Nancy, what have you got? Nancy told the police that Cheryl poisoned Scott. Nancy told them that she herself had actually purchased wine and antifreeze, because Cheryl had asked her to. And then she watched as Cheryl mixed the wine and antifreeze together and then gave the bottle to her husband as a gift. She said that Cheryl told her to keep quiet or else they're just going to view Nancy as this jealous lover who poisoned Scott because Nancy was the one who bought the wine and the antifreeze. What story are they going to build? Which I'm like, oh my god, Cheryl, you thought of a lot. You thought of everything. 
This is totally Desperate Housewives. And then, according to Nancy, on the night that Scott died, Cheryl had invited him over. They chatted. She'd, like, been lovey-dovey with him. She gave him the wine as a gift. And then she, she told him as she wanted to guide him spiritually. And she said that she had dreamed that he would have spiritual visions if he drank that, the wine. But it had to be that night. And she'd put a spell on it and shit. She told Scott this? Mm-hmm. She was a witch. Remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know that. And I guess Scott being married to her also knew that. And I guess he was into it. Because she's like, I put a spell on this. I put a spell on you. No, she went to potions class and she was like, yo, Snape, hook me the fuck up. And she bewitched his wine. But it's actually just poison. Just antifreeze. It's not a potion. <laughs> Although it's not not a potion. I'm just saying. I know. What is Instead antifreeze? of Eye of Newt, um, chemicals and bad things. That you need for AC. <laughs> I mean, it keeps things from freezing. It can be colder than freezing and not freeze. Wow, we sound dumb. I'm going to continue. Because <laughs> it's... It's like antifreeze. It's like not <laughs> freezing. It's like cold. It's made of chemicals, and chemicals are bad for you. They're like GMOs. I mean, antifreeze is not good for you, clearly. <laughs> Just ask Scott. Oh, you can't, because he's dead. True. That is... Yeah, okay. True. Anywho. So, Cheryl. She put a spell on the bottle. She was like, Scott, yo, drink this. It has to be tonight. I'll guide you on the phone. But you gotta drink this, and you'll have spiritual visions. And who knows where they may lead into the great beyond. Um, and so Scott leaves. And Cheryl then takes out her witchcraft books. She lights some candles. And then she starts saying prayers and spells. And I don't know. <laughs> All she need to do is, like, gut a goat and play in its blood for it to, like, do the full picture. But... Scott and her then got on the phone for nine hours. They were on the phone. It took that long, either A, for him to drink that bottle, or B, for it to kill him? I thought antifreeze was quicker than that. I mean, he'd only drank half of it, which is a full bottle of regular wine, but still, nine hours, honey. No, that that was her convincing him. Oh, my because, God. Um, he also, he thought it was like a homemade wine, and so I don't really understand what kind of bottle... Um, Nancy bought for him to think it was homemade wine, but he thought it was homemade wine. Well... And I guess... Oh, that's probably why it was, like, a potion. And, like, gonna give him spiritual visions. She made it homemade. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like, obviously, she had to open this bottle of wine some way because she had to mix the antifreeze with it. And so I'm sure she just had some other type of bottle with, like, a lid that you can close. And she's like, oh, Uh, here's your potion wine. Oh, yeah, that that makes more sense. Which literally... Like one of those like little flip-top bottles. Yeah, and literally looking at this just from outsider's perspective, obviously we talk about murder a lot, but I'm like, someone gives you a bottle of wine that they made for you, that they say is a potion, and, and it's going to make you hallucinate. Yeah, I'm going to think poison. Oh, he's absolutely in love. He would do anything to get back with her, though. There's nowhere in his mind that he would think that she would hurt him. It's always it's where they go really wrong. Sad. That is really sad. But while on the phone with him, she's trying to convince him to drink the wine. He starts drinking it. And he starts feeling weird. He starts not feeling good. But she stays on the phone with him. 
because she's preventing him from, like, calling the ambulance or getting medical attention. So he starts getting sick and being like, oh, I need to call someone. She's like, no, 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 baby. Stay on the phone with me. Talk to me. But it's it's just so the poison takes effect. Right. Long enough that he's not going to survive. So his speech began to slur. And eventually he got to the point where he hung up the phone. And he's like, I'm just, I'm going to go walk up to my bed, upstairs to my bedroom to lay down. I feel like shit. I must be super drunk or whatever. But he didn't even make it to the door. Oh my god. He collapsed on the floor, slipped into a coma, and by the time that someone arrived at the house, gay, he was dead and he was laying in the fetal position. That is heartbreaking because that shows you that like, in, when he's unconscious, he was in so much pain that his body curled up into the fetal position. Yeah. Oh my god. And so Nancy telling the police all of that and giving them all the evidence, all the receipts. I mean, not like actual shopping receipts, but like the evidence kind, metaphysical receipts. That was enough to have Cheryl arrested. But Nancy never actually testified to any of this in court. Nancy was scheduled as like the lead and primary witness in Cheryl's murder trial. But five months after going to the police... She was killed in a house fire. But this fire at her house that killed her, it was not set by accident. And it wasn't even set by Cheryl. Was it gay? It was set by... No. We got a new character coming in. It's season three. It's time for a new character. It was set by either a 19 or 16-year-old, my sources said both, named Brent Crawford, whom Cheryl had apparently seduced... And then convinced him to kill her former girlfriend. So Cheryl is just killing all of her loved ones. Except for Gay. Gay got away. Yeah. But also all of this. I'm like, Cheryl's sitting there just like, something about you. And it, oh my god. When I said Desperate Housewives, I meant it. So the judge in Cheryl's trial eventually ruled against allowing videotapes of Nancy uh, to be introduced as evidence of, like, videos, I guess, of Nancy's confession and everything. Wait. Or, I guess, her police interrogation. They couldn't be used? But that was all the information. Yeah. Yeah, but she was dead, so she couldn't, like, give consent for them to use it. I I don't know why, but the judge said he can't use it. And then testimony. This is why I think the kid was 16 and not 19, because his testimony... The, the teenager's testimony in regards to the fire was also ruled as inadmissible. So I assume it's because he's 16. I mean, yes, it could also be 19. But either way, Brent recanted his confessions that he made to police and to his parents. But what he'd said at the time before recanting everything is he'd provided graphic details about his role in murdering Nancy. And... In a letter that police found that was in his handwriting, which I don't know why he wrote this shit in a letter, but he did, he described how he found Nancy laying on the floor drunk. He'd been sent there by Cheryl to go do away with her, to kill her. So he breaks into her house. Nancy's passed out on the floor drunk, I guess. This candle's burning all around. And he said, and I quote, So, instead of cutting her neck... I flipped over all the tables with the candles on and left. 
he burned the house down by flipping over the tables with the candles on it. it because he saw that that was the opportunity. He wouldn't have to cut her throat. But sure. But also, he was totally planning on cutting her throat. Yeah, he had a plan. Opportunity just changed it. Yeah. He said that Cheryl uh, told him to kill Nancy, and she offered him 300 bucks and a motorcycle as payment. Which is another thing that I'm like, yeah, he was probably 16. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, he's totally 16. But also, she was, like, sleeping with this 16-year-old that she'd... Well, it's that she seduced him. I assume that means she's sleeping with him. I also do, and... And not just, like, she kissed him. No, I'm thinking she's doing some pretty bad shit, considering that's all she's Mm -hmm. been doing. Cheryl's doing a ton of bad shit. Yes. So, Brent, after confessing all this, was, like, put in jail or a juvie or thing, um, and... In a call he made to his mom that was taped, because he was in jail when he made it, he said that he'd been smoking weed with Cheryl, and he killed Nancy while he was high because she was going to testify against her in court, and she was the star witness. And I'm like, oh shit, Cheryl told you exactly. Like, that's that's not only murder, that's like witness intimidation. That's everything. Yep. So, in court... The defense, Cheryl's defense, argued that Scott Dell, he killed himself. It was suicide. He was depressed. His cancer had returned. Like, the original police findings were what happened. And also that the circumstantial evidence that the prosecutors had, it was bizarre and full of holes and, like, had no part of it. Witchcraft, that's crazy. Well, and also, since Nancy's gone... And her testimony was not able to be played in court. There are a lot of holes. I mean, the actual evidence they have is hearsay. Because all of the things that she's saying, like, oh, she had me buy the wine and the antifreeze. Like, none of this is stuff that wouldn't be known. Like, it's it's known that he died from antifreeze poisoning and all of this. So, also, she's dead and... I mean, there's there's a lot of things, because also, well, her house burned down because these candles fell over. They can see that from the investigation, so I don't know. But I also know she died of smoke inhalation, so if she was already passed out drunk next to the fire, the candles might not have burned down the house, so there might have been clear evidence of like, oh, someone knocked these tables over. Oh, so the house wasn't completely burnt down? I don't know. I know that Nancy died of smoke inhalation. And that she was laying on the floor there in the living room, passed out. Right. So it could have been one the house totally like burned to the ground. Or it could have been one that she died from the smoke, but there was still like clear evidence. I don't know. But apparently all of this was enough evidence for the judge to be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that Cheryl duped her husband into drinking this like quote unquote lethal cocktail. And his summary that he read says that, and I quote, I find that from 1992 onward, Cheryl Dell expressed a hatred towards her husband, Scott Dell, and wished him dead. She wanted the exclusive custody of the children, the sole occupation and possession of the farm, and wanted Scott Dell out of her life forever. There is seldom a case where we hear such strong and consistent evidence about the character of a deceased person. Scott Dell was very positive about his life and his love for his children. 
He wanted to live for his children. I am satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Scott Dell did not commit suicide, but was murdered by poisoning. The evidence of Scott Dell's friends confirms he could not let Cheryl Dell go. He felt he was her caregiver, and as a result, she was able to manipulate him into doing anything she wanted. The only inference I can draw when I look at all the evidence is that Cheryl Dell knew the wine Scott Dell was drinking was laced with antifreeze, and that the effects of drinking the lethal cocktail would be death. I'm really impressed that they were able to make these conclusions without so much of that key evidence. Well, and it said it was a non-jury trial, so I don't understand how that works. It's Canada. I don't understand the Canadian legal system, I guess. But, um, yeah. I fully believe she did. Same. But just from the evidence, and I mean, I wasn't in the trial and I didn't read through all of the trial transcripts, just some of them. I feel like it's it's a lot of it's hearsay. Yes. Well, and part of me was just thinking, and this is maybe like a bigger question of how we find out information, but I'm like, if Nancy's testimony was not able to be used in court and then she was murdered, how do we know it? I guess it must have been leaked. Or maybe the videos of her saying it weren't allowed in court, but like the transcript, I don't I don't know. That's a good point. Which, I mean, that would change everything that I'm thinking about right now. But yeah, this is very interesting because it's like that heavy evidence that came in, then wasn't allowed, but yet they still convicted her. Yeah. On February 2nd of 2001... Cheryl Dell was found guilty of murdering her husband, Scott, by poisoning him with the antifreeze, and she was sentenced to life in prison without parole for 25 years. So, like, she would be possibly up for parole in 25 years, and I guess they made it 22. Oh, time served, probably, because her first parole hearing is scheduled for December 28th, 2022. So, in two and a half years... And also, one day before the 27th anniversary of her husband's murder. Dude, your case. Uh Uh-huh. She was sneaky. She, yes. Like, she was really thinking through all of the ways to make it look like the story she was wanting to tell. Oh, yeah. And I know with the topic being a cult, I definitely could have found something that was more satanic. And there, there was actually a... Uh, case I almost did that was like, I think they were called the Beasts of Satan. In it was a murder that happened satanic group in Italy. But when I found this one, I was like, this has so much like drama to it. I yes, she's a witch. I'm gonna do it. Well, and I like that you picked something so very different because I will say. I bet there's a lot of our listeners who looked at the title of this episode and expected us to do the West Memphis Three. However, oh, yeah. But the thing is, the fact, like, the whole satanic panic involvement in that case is so questionable, and it's so driven by that satanic panic fear that I didn't want to do it. And so, spoiler alert, that's not the case you're about to hear. But also, it's really intense, and I feel like it's one we would need to share. Because telling oh, yeah. telling the story of the Westman's Miss 3, which 
I'm sure a lot of you have heard this, but there were three young boys that were murdered in West Memphis in 1993 by Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin. Those were the three men that were convicted of murdering these three young boys. This case has so many twists and turns. It's so crazy. And it's a really interesting profile on our justice system and how fear makes things happen. Because these three men, to this day, like they said that they didn't do it. And this case has so many twists and turns. I mean, it starts from these three men being convicted of the murder of these three boys. And they're getting death penalty, life imprisonment, and through a lot, which would be the whole reason we need to share this case, they ended up doing an Alfred plea in 2011. There was evidence mm-hmm. that they didn't do it, but like not enough. And it just it so controversial. So many things that they ended up doing the Alfred plea, which I don't think we've really talked much about that. But the Alfred plea is when you plead guilty but assert that you didn't do it. You assert your innocence, but you acknowledge that prosecutors, there's enough evidence to convict you. So you admit that you did it, even though you're like, I didn't, but they could say I did. I think I had one case, because that feels familiar. I think I had one case, I mean, it might have been 30, 40 episodes ago that I did that had an Alfred plea. Well, the three of them ended up doing 18 years. Jesus. So, I mean, I will say that is probably one of the biggest profile occult cases that we'll just need to do on a separate episode. Well, and if you're wanting to look into more information about the West Memphis Three before we do that case, check out the documentaries. There's three of them, um, Paradise Lost. They, they were done throughout the years as this case just grew and grew. What's horrible and what is the worst part about this case is not only the injustice for the three men... But the fact that the killers were never found, because everyone was determined that the West Memphis Three did this, and like I said, there was enough evidence to convict them, so it's like they never looked for anyone else. And so these three young boys that were killed, there's no justice for their families. Oh, Lord. So with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and jump into my case. Okay. Jump, jump along. The case I'm doing is the murder of Jeanette De Palma. The sources I used, an article from BuzzFeed by Anna Kapowski. I do that. Oh, you used her last time. Kapowski. Yeah, I I used her last time and it's Kopsky and I do that. Yeah, okay. Let's just say she wrote a really good list that I've been using. An article from Wikipedia. I actually used a couple. One was the murder of Jeanette De Palma and the other was about John List. And then I used an article from The Parrot, the official Audubon High School news website, and the article was by Julianne Brown, and they are in Audubon, New Jersey. It's like their high school newspaper website. I love high school newspapers and school newspapers that actually do, like, investigative reporting. Yeah, because this is a case that is really well known in New Jersey, And they covered it, and they honestly had so much information that I couldn't find anywhere else. And I was like, okay, I'm going to trust these kids because it sounds like they know their shit. This is where they live. What was that one case you did? It was like the the redheaded killer? No. Yeah. We did truck stop. It was the redheaded murderer. 
It was the murderer yeah. that was killing redheads, and that teacher had his class doing a project that was, like, diving into it and, like, helping with theories, and it ended up being used. So fascinating. That shit's so cool. I know. So in Springfield Township, New Jersey, in the summer of 1972, Jeanette De Palma was a 16-year-old girl, and she was known to be a very religious, church-going person, but with a little bit of a wild streak. So she's a 16-year-old. She's a 16-year-old church girl, yeah. On Monday, August 7th, 1972, Jeanette left her house after she told her mom she was going to go hitchhike and take the train to a friend's house. Mind you, this is 72, so that was normal. I know. Bye, Mom. I'm going to go hitchhike. Okay. Well, she was like, I'm going to go hitchhike so I can get to the train station. I'm going to go over to a friend's house before work. And her mom's just like, okay. Far away does this friend live? What you've got to remember, trains are used a lot in the Northeast. Like, when I would go from Manhattan to Long Island, I was on a train. That's fair. So, however, Jeanette never made it to her friend's house. And she never returned home. When it started to get later into the night, her parents filed a missing persons report with the local police department. They were like, this is not right. She never made it to her friend's house. She hasn't turned around and and come home. Where's Jeanette? So on September 19th, six whole weeks after her disappearance, her body was found. Someone was out walking their dog and their dog ended up coming back to them with her decomposing forearm and hand. Oh. So a search party ended up leading to the discovery of the rest of her body, which was found at the top of a cliff inside Springfield's Howdley Quarry. Sorry if I said that wrong. Um, which was known to the locals as the Devil's Teeth. I do not know how I would react if I was out with Max and he came back with someone's arm. That's gotta be horrifying. I mean, you know how Charlie finds bones the way he does, so... Yes. I'm more likely to have this happen to me than you are, I think. But hopefully it does not, because, holy shit, this is, I mean, this is horrifying. Also, we don't take the kids off leashes, so (laughs) if they find an arm, we found the body. Yeah, that's true. Details of the crime scene, though, they vary by source, but it definitely looked like something was going on. Something was off. Jeanette's body was discovered laying inside a square. Other sources say it wasn't necessarily a square, but more so a a coffin shape. And it was made from logs. So there's like her body's in the middle. There's logs surrounding her in a square or a coffin shape. And inside the square, along with her body, were a series of makeshift wooden crosses. These crosses definitely look like they were somehow related to the occult. Oh, so... It's like a shrine kind of set up around her. Something. Or like a murder altar. Like an altar, like a spell, shrine. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. So the discovery of Jeanette's body unleashed a lot of wild claims. More and more witnesses reported seeing occult objects, signs of witchcraft, and evidence of a ritual sacrifice taking place. That's the other thing this scene could have been, a ritual sacrifice. Oh. Some people claim the body was found lying on a pentagram, and one anonymous witness said that all around her body were dead animals tied to trees with string, and some of them were actually placed in jars. This same witness also reported that while searching for Jeanette's body, they found arrows 
carved in the trees that would lead you to the body. So, like, someone was trying to point you in the direction so you could find her. So about two weeks after the discovery of Jeanette's body, several newspapers, including the Star Ledger and the New York Daily News, they started reporting that she may have been the victim of an occult sacrifice. So again, there's a lot of rumors floating about, but with the structure of the scene, how her body was found, they're reporting it really looks like this was a sacrifice. During this time in Springfield, there was a lot of talk going on about witchcraft, rituals, and Satanism. One anonymous witness even said about two years prior to Jeanette's death, there was much talk in my school about a cult in the surrounding area. They were known as the witches. Very creative. Wow. They must have let it be known in the area that they planned to kill a child on or about Halloween, either by kidnapping and sacrificing them or by poison. Many suspected that Jeanette's death was targeted by Satanists or witches due to her involvement at the church. Her church obviously being an evangelical center, but her church quickly claimed that they had no big impact on her life. Which, you We didn't know her. Literally. Um... I'm sorry, what? Like her church just being like, oh, no, this had nothing to do with us. She actually didn't really come around a lot. She she came to youth group like one time. Sorry, I'm, I don't know her. Uh, yeah, whoa. First off, church, uh, you should know more than most that you can't say you didn't have an impact on her life. You don't fucking know. Second off, that's weird. They seem defensive. That, my first thought would be like, did the church have something to do with this? They didn't, but just their immediate denial of any involvement, even just, like, influencing her life is staggering. I would assume it'd be the opposite. I I feel like it would be much more likely you'd see someone who, like, went to church once with their parents and the church or the community being like, we lost one of our own. Like, making sure that, like, she was a part of them and making it known that regardless of... However often she went or whatever, she's still part of the community and part of them. Nope. Rumors about the case set off a panic in several Union County communities, which were still recovering from the shock of the John List murders, which occurred only 10 months earlier. Now, for those who don't know, as a side note. Like me. Yeah, like you. I see the face you just gave me. On November 9th, 1971, John List killed his wife, mother, and three children in their home in Westfield, New Jersey, and then he disappeared. He had... Wait. Yeah. Do you, Have you heard of this? I know this case. I think Sebastian's heard of it, too. Uh, listeners, if y'all heard <laughs> that, if you didn't, that's just confusing. Um, my cat's screaming right now for no reason. Uh, no, I think John List's ghost is in the house right now. But I think My Favorite Murder did it in one of their earlier episodes. Because you haven't done it, right? No, I haven't. Oh my god, that's... Put that down. We have to do that. Yeah, we definitely do, because he planned these murders so meticulously that almost an entire month passed before anyone suspected that something was wrong. He killed five people. So, during Jeanette's disappearance and her murder... John List had not been caught. 
Oh. So that's exactly why all of these communities were freaking out. John List, like, they have found what happened, they know he's disappeared, and they can't find him. And now Jeanette has died, too. She's been murdered. And they're like, holy shit, okay, is List, like, going around? As it turns out, List actually assumed a new identity, remarried, and he ended up eluding justice for nearly 18 years. So that's a long time to be freaking out. Yes. However, he was finally apprehended in Virginia on June 1st, 1989, after the story of his murders was broadcast on uh, America's Most Wanted, and he was caught. I wonder how many crimes have been solved due to America's Most Wanted or shows like that that would not have been solved otherwise. I know. It was a way to get these criminals' faces out there. And this is back when there weren't, good God, near as many things to watch on TV as there are now. Because this is the late 80s. No. And so, and so this is one of the shows. Like, this is what you watched. I mean, this is still like kids on milk cartons actually did a thing. Exactly. Also, how fucked up would that be? Being like in grade school, being like, I'm just a kid. And I'm eight years old drinking my milk. Oh, there's a kid who looks just like me who's missing. And that's how the Face in the Milk Card book happened. But, like, how fucked up would that be? Being like, I'm an elementary... Listeners who were in elementary schools that gave you, here's your lunch and here's a kid just like you who's missing every day. It is pretty terrifying. I wonder when they stopped putting missing people on milk cartons. I never had missing people. I just had nutrition facts. Same. So, the community's freaking out. We don't know what happened to Jeanette. But authorities completely rejected any suggestion of occult activity and suggested that Jeanette had probably overdosed while partying in the woods with her friends. Why there's all this shit surrounding her then? I don't know. I'm kind of not agreeing with them. That's some, we don't want to put in the effort to do anything about this kind of reasoning yeah i'm like dude body was surrounded by weird things and things you should be questioning someone who just um overdosed and after partying it's like no so after her autopsy the police ruled out the possibility of an overdose because there were no drugs found in her system or any drugs around her body The coroner found no evidence of bone fractures, bullet wounds, or knife strikes. And due to Jeanette's body already being really badly decomposed, the police had a really hard time determining what her exact cause of death was. So for an undisclosed reason, the coroner eventually determined that Jeanette's cause of death was strangulation, which categorized her case as an unsolved homicide. I mean, I guess... I don't know if maybe she's skeletonized to the point. If it's been six weeks, I don't think she'd be fully skeletonized. But that might be a murder that wouldn't really show much evidence on the bones. Maybe if she had like a broken hyoid, but I can't think of, I don't know. I don't know. There was also an unusually high amount of lead that was found in Jeanette's body. But the police and the coroner had absolutely no explanation for this. And there never would be. Early on in the investigation, the police received an anonymous tip that a homeless man named Red had been living at a campsite in the woods, and he fled after Jeanette went missing. 
While this looked like it could potentially be a lead for them to follow, the Union County Prosecutor's Office eventually decided that Red had nothing to do with Jeanette's murder and no arrests were ever made. To this day, her case remains unsolved. And in the late 1990s and early 2000s, Weird New Jersey magazine began to report on this, at the time, decades-old case. Because, again, this happened in the 70s. Yeah. And they did this after they received several anonymous letters regarding Jeanette's death. Editor and co-founder Mark Moran, he started to investigate the case and wrote about many suspicious details, including the allegation that the Springfield Police Department had lost or destroyed the case file. How? I mean, I guess, I, I mean, I've never worked in a police station, especially one that has like paper records that go back this long or anything. How the hell do you lose an entire case file? Well, the Springfield Police Department, they maintained that the file was lost due to flooding caused by Hurricane Floyd in 1999. Oh. However, there are others that allege that a copy is still on file. It just hasn't been located. So Moran eventually teamed up with Weird New Jersey correspondent Jesse P. Pollock to write the book Death on the Devil's Teeth, because remember this quarry she was found was known as the Devil's Teeth. Damn, that's a good fucking title. Yeah, Death on the Devil's Teeth, the strange murder that shocked suburban New Jersey. So throughout the course of their research, Pollock and Moran discovered several instances of Apostle cover-up, connections to other unsolved murders, and previously unknown suspects. So they've been able to dig up a lot of information. Damn. But at this point in time, it hasn't taken them anywhere. Jeanette's case is still completely unsolved. And there's so much suspicion and lore that surrounds it, especially surrounding the occult, that it's hard to know what's what's real and what actually happened and what is just part of the story that's been told over and over. So that is the murder of Jeanette De Palma. Wow. I think it's crazy that in your case, there are so many, I, I guess also I'm just straight up postmorteming right now. Do it. But in your case, there's so much information that's not known that's, that should be there, but isn't. And yet in my case, it's like the opposite. There's so much information about what happened but did it i know well when you think of the bizarre circumstances surrounding the way jeanette was found in yours scott as we talked about it very much looked like a suicide cheryl staged that one very well jeanette's body was found decomposing in the woods surrounded by potentially small animals crosses made out of wood like wood And inside a square coffin, like, made by logs. Clearly something that was set up to mean something. And yet they tried to say that it was like, oh, she just OD'd. I feel like our cases are almost opposites in that way. Like, mine was totally did not look like a murder at all. And then was discovered to be a murder. Yours totally looked like a murder and yeah they tried to be like i wasn't yeah i mean trying to say that it was an overdose when it's like no dude what if there was some type of party going on in the woods 
when with kids, you know, 16 year olds, teenagers with dead animals, wooden crosses and making coffin squares, there's going to be more talk about this party like that. That's not something that's going to be able to be hidden. There's going to be some 17 year old who's like, dude, Jeanette died at the party I was at last night. Like, that's not something that's not, that's, that's like, going to be hidden completely. Right. It's it's not. So, I don't think that was the case. I think that she was kidnapped on her way to her friend's house, potentially hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. We know how unsafe hitchhiking is now. Oh, yeah. Also, that just made me think, if she was going, if she was going to a party, she probably would have gone with her friend. She wouldn't have been going alone. So, like, and again, she was your normal teenager. She went to church. She had her wild streak. We all had that. That pretty much describes everyone. So there's nothing abnormal. No. But it's just, it's very interesting how, I mean, the police were so vehemently denying that this had anything to do with satanic ritual or the occult. While everyone in town was like, yeah, no, I mean, it totally does. But this is like the precursor to satanic panic. Like, this shit's been going on for a long time, and it just just blew up in the 90s. So, because of the way that her body was displayed, where it was left to decompose, I feel like there was some crazy shit going on. See, I don't know. I was about to say the opposite. I think... Because of the way her body was presented, it's it's one of those that's, like, it looks very, like, cinematic and whatever. But it also could have been done real quick. You know, little stick crosses, little, you know, bigger sticks or logs around her in a coffin or rectangle shape. I think she might have just been someone who was kidnapped and murdered and their killer as a way to, like, throw the sun off their trail or not make it look like them it's like oh shit let me make this look satanic or something so they're not gonna look at me they're gonna look at you know the teen kids or the the goths or the satanic people because putting four or you know maybe it's too deep eight logs around someone and then some like little stick crosses that's not a lot and that doesn't seem if someone's going to be, like, an actual, quote-unquote, sacrificial victim, I feel like you do a little more ceremony. I don't know. I don't know. But her case remains unsolved. Shit. Well, damn. These were two cases that I thoroughly did not enjoy. No. Occult murders are very nuanced. Yeah. I mean, they take the... They take the weird aspect of like, oh, this is a scenario or mindset or thing that is not one I share, so it's different to me, and just amp that up so much. And I feel like just really play on the what's unknown is scary and amp that up. Most definitely. Well, in your case, Cheryl totally thought she was a witch. I mean, I ain't convinced she wasn't. No, there you go. I mean, it's just antifreeze and not, like, I don't know, a dreamless forever sleep potion. But, you know, she's somehow, I mean, she's either a witch or a sociopath or both. Because she had everyone doing her bidding and she she thought through 
so much. All the details. And then yet, there are so many details that she hadn't thought through. Because obviously, after the fact, Nancy might go to the police. If she knew all this shit, and it had gone long enough that they're not going to be like, Oh, it's the jilted ex-lover. Or the jilted ex's lover, I should say. I don't, I don't know. But then she had Nancy killed in a way that didn't necessarily look like murder. But she had a 16-year-old do it, and 16-year-olds don't know how to shut the fuck up about anything. <laughs> That's true. So, damn. Okay. Well, that was our episode of uh, Occult Murders, and I hope y'all enjoyed it. Um, I certainly enjoy doing my research and basically getting to research a case while also getting all of the drama that I could have ever wanted out of like a primetime ABC show. So um, if y'all enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. Let us know what you enjoyed, what you thought of it. We love reading y'all's reviews and hearing from y'all. Yes, and while you are at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO, Black Lives Matter. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye.